0: Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 11 verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you on this Lord's Day as we gather together to worship him. And we also want to especially welcome those of you who are visiting us today. If you're here today, just in town for a few weeks, and you just wanted to squeeze in a time of worship, or even if you're here at the invitation of a friend or coworker, welcome, welcome. We hope and pray that our time together will be encouraging and edifying, especially if you're considering the claims of Christianity. If you are not a Christian and you, with such courage, have stepped into a church service, never having done before, never having done so before, I must say um, it takes a lot of courage to do so. And thank you for being willing to do that with us. And let's just hope and pray that God will really speak to you and encourage you, in the hopes that maybe even uh, persuade you for you in becoming a Christian. Yourself today. But without further ado, let's just bow our heads and ask for the Lord to bless our time as we seek to hear Him in prayer, uh, in the Word, excuse me. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us. Father, as we have lived in this world and as we have encountered the things of life that might discourage us, that might overwhelm us, that might even cause us to dread, oh God, we pray now that you would lift up our spirits and that you would help us to see the hope that we have as followers of you. God, I also pray for those among us who may not know you, but are seeking, who are considering, those who are investigating the claims of the calling that you have given to us. Father, I pray that you will speak to every single one of us, no matter what walk of life we are on. And we pray that you will speak mightily for the good of your people, for the edification of your saints, for the salvation of those who are seeking, and for the glory of your great name. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people together said, amen and amen. So last month, I had the wonderful privilege of officiating a wedding in Cancun, Cancun, Mexico. I've never been there before, which is why I probably messed up. the name of the place cancun mexico which is my first ever destination wedding that i had the privilege of officiating making it a very special occasion but what made it even more special was that i was given permission to bring my eldest daughter Kara, to come along with me and it was such a wonderful time where for two days Kara and i were able to enjoy this wonderful you know place in a beautiful you know resort where we had this uh many wonderful experience and 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 many many perks like all inclusive meals you guys know what all inclusive meals are right yeah well kara my daughter never experienced that kind of phenomenon before this thing where you can just go at any time and eat as much as you want and eat for more and it was obvious to some of the wedding guests that she was so unfamiliar with this phenomena that one of the guests at the rehearsal wedding tried to encourage her by saying hey kara just know this If you want more just ask for more. If you want more juice, ask for more juice. If you want more pasta, ask for more pasta. If you want more cake, just ask for more cake. And one of the phrases that this gentleman kept saying to my daughter was this, it doesn't hurt to ask, Cara. It doesn't hurt to ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. So just ask. Now, at first, I was a little bit bothered by what this guy was saying to my daughter because it almost seemed like he was encouraging her to just be greedy and to be excessive. And it got to a point where I was thinking maybe I should just kind of make sure my daughter's not around this guy because I was thinking is he going to be a bad influence on my daughter because she's going to like leave this place thinking I want more I want more I want more and I'm like what you know this isn't a resort you live in a pastor's household what are you thinking but the more I thought about it I realized that this guy was not a bad influence whatsoever no in fact I think he was a good influence why because He was setting up a framework for my daughter to be able to later on, by God's grace, to comprehend that God loves her extravagantly and God is for her. How so? Well, that's what we're going to address today. In this text that we're studying as we're continuing our sermon series through the parables of Jesus. And here, Jesus is going to address through this story that he tells about this very principle that Kara learned in Cancun. That it doesn't hurt to ask. But interestingly, Jesus is going to look at it from the opposite standpoint. Namely, it hurts to not ask. Jesus is going to show us that when we don't go out of our way to ask our Heavenly Father for things through prayer... We are hurting ourselves. When we do not engage God by asking for things extravagantly to where we say, more, Father, more, we are actually harming ourselves and we could actually be harming the people around us. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with us today as it helps us to understand the nature of our relationship to God. Number one, why we reluctantly pray or why we are reluctant to pray. Number two, what we are jeopardizing when we reluctantly pray. And number three, how we can overcome our reluctance to pray. Why we are reluctant to pray, what we jeopardize because of that, and how we can overcome it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, why we are reluctant to pray. Now, some of you are probably wondering why I'm even bringing up this topic of prayer and making it the main focus of today's sermon, because after all, we just read it and you don't want to encounter that word prayer whatsoever. There's no mention of prayer whatsoever in the verses that we just read. But ah, if you read this passage in light of the full context, in light of the full chapter, you would know that these verses make up part of the teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples about prayer. In fact, prior to the verses that are of the ones that we're studying today, Jesus was teaching them, about how to pray. This is famously known as the Lord's prayer. You know, the prayer that starts off with our father who art in heaven. The focus of the passage prior to this is about how we should pray. But then we come to our passage where Jesus shifts the focus of his teaching on prayer by talking about why we should pray. But he takes an interesting twist by zeroing in on the issue of why we don't pray specifically, why we are reluctant to pray. And so Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about why we are reluctant to play, pray Excuse me. through the characters that are described here, two men who are described to us as, quote-unquote, friends, where one of these friends finds himself in a very dire situation, a crisis situation according to that cultural context. A friend without warning shows up at his doorstep in the middle of the night, and this guy, this host, has nothing to give as food for this unexpected guest, right? You see, back in the days of the Bible, there was this cultural obligation, this cultural duty to hospitality. And what that means is, is if someone came to your home, someone who you knew, someone who was a friend, someone who was even acquaintance of yours and had nowhere else to go but to your place, you were socially obligated to bring them into your home to give them a bed to sleep in and give them a f- meal to eat. But, of course, this guy was in a bad situation because he had no food to eat. And here's the thing. In that context, if you failed in this social duty of extending hospitality, you were at risk of being ostracized by the community because this was a very important community value to the point where if you failed in this duty, you could be badly repudiated to where your reputation would go south your businesses could be hurting your ability to i don't know marry off your daughter would just be very much hindered because you acquired this bad reputation of showing no hospitality and so obviously this was a bad situation for this guy who has this guy coming in unannounced he was in a bad situation where he was potentially threatened by his inability to extend hospitality this was a crisis moment and so what does this guy do he goes over To his quote unquote friend's house. And the reason why I'm saying it that way is because the text seems to imply that this friend that he goes over to wasn't really his friend at all. And the reason why I say that is because of the quote unquote friend's reaction to the request for bread, which we read in verse 7. Let's read it again. What does he say to the request for bread? He says, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything doesn't sound like much of a friend does it in fact jesus seems to confirm this when you hear what he says in verse eight what does he say there he says i tell you though he the person in bed will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs in other words, Jesus is saying that this guy in bed, he's not going to get up and give this other dude bread because of his friendship. He doesn't value the friendship enough to be inconvenienced in getting out of bed and giving him food. But he does value something else, something that is important to him to where he is willing to be inconvenience. Something way more important than his quote unquote friendship with this guy. And what is that? It's his reputation. His reputation. Where do you get that idea? Well, I get it with what it says in that phrase in verse 5. Because of his impudence. Do you guys know what an impudent person is? Do you know what it means when a person says that this person has impudence? It basically means that this person is completely scandalously rude he shows no respect he has no dignity he's absolutely shameless right he is like the worst kind of person in a social setting ever this is the kind of person who would be the most disrespectful dishonoring disingenuous kind of person that you could be this is a shameless kind of person and that would have been the reputation of this guy in bed who initially didn't want to give any bread he would have risked gaining that kind of reputation amongst his peers in his community had he not helped this guy, especially since this guy was in a crisis situation. You see, this guy who needed bread, he knew. He knew that even though this guy would not give him anything because of friendship, he knew that because of this cultural expectation, this cultural duty of hospitality, that this guy was going to give him bread. And therefore, he was still knocking on the door, even when the guy said no, because he know he had the culture on his side. Now, with that said, we do ask the question, if this is true, why does this guy who needs the bread call the other guy his friend when in reality, he's not a friend at all? Why does he keep emphasizing friend, friend, lend me some food? Why does he keep calling him a friend when he's not really a friend at all? And here we begin to see what Jesus is trying to teach us when it comes to why we reluctantly pray. Many of you in here would call yourselves genuine followers of God. Genuine Christians. To where you would speak in such intimate terms about your relationship to God. You would say, oh God. You are a good, good father. You are a faithful God. And as you sing songs of praise, as we just did a moment ago, you would say through your words of song, uh, how you and him are like this, how tight you are. And you would tell your non-Christian friends, yes, I have a personal relationship with God. He loves me. I love him. And yet, when you take an honest look as to when you actually genuinely engage this God through prayer... The only time you will ever engage him, the only time you will ever sincerely seek him out is when you're going through a crisis, is when you're going through a dire moment. What does that tell us? It tells us that the way many of you in here see God is virtually identical to the way that this man who needed bread saw the guy who had the bread. You see God as someone who is so far off, so distant to where he would not have any genuine concern for you, except maybe in times when you're in a real crisis. Many of you guys will not admit that, but if you're honest with yourself, it's absolutely true. Take a listen to how one theologian by the name of Samuel Storms, what he says in his book, Reaching God's Ear. He writes this, quote, It cannot be said too strongly or too frequently. How we perceive God controls how we pray to him. Sad to say, by and large, the concept of God entertained by many evangelical Christians is what we would call the I believe in God, but let's spell it with a small g syndrome. On this interpretation of things, God not only created all things, but stayed around afterwards and on occasion will actually manifest his presence as a way of letting us know he still exists. This he does by means of infrequent but spectacular miracles such as parting the Red Sea and feeding of the 5,000. However, God, excuse me, lowercase God, still doesn't concern himself with the trivial issues in our lives, either because he's too busy with the major crisis in human affairs or because he just decided to leave the routine matters of everyday life to us. Most evangelical Christians will never actually affirm this interpretation of life, but when you survey how they conduct their lives, you see that they believe it is True. What's he saying? He's saying how you see God determines how you will pray to him. And the sad reality is according to Storms, Dr. Storms, is that most Christians, even those of you who say, "He and I are like this, we we love each other. I have a great relationship with God. He's my faithful father." Right? Such intimate terms like you would say to a friend. And yet, deep down, if you're honest, You don't ever really see him in that light, evidenced by your lack of prayer, by your reluctance to pray. You assume, like so many of your fellow Christians around the globe, that God doesn't care about you unless you're going through a really, really bad situation. But other than that, it's every man for himself, everyone for himself. Just deal with it, right? And as a result, it leads you into a reluctance of prayer but jesus goes on to say that when you allow your reluctant prayer life driven by your distant view of god right that will harm not only your prayer life but it will actually harm you period this reluctance of prayer as it indicates a distant view of god will cause you to be jeopardized how well, to explain, let me go to my next point, what we jeopardize when we reluctantly pray. Let's read again verse 9 all the way down to verse 13, and it reads as follows. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy spirit to those who ask him here? Jesus is directly challenging our reluctance to pray by telling us that we should pray boldly. We should pray with such almost scandalous demeanor to where we're willing to Ask anything and everything under the sun. Jesus is essentially saying, look, when you pray, don't pray like as a timid person, unsure whether or not God even wants to hear your voice. No, pray boldly to where you are willing to nag God, to where you ask anything and everything, whether it's asking for specific things, whether it's asking for a favorable outcome, whether it's asking for a certain kind of opportunity, ask away. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, everything is up for grabs. Nothing is off the table. All this fair game. So just ask anything that you want of God through prayer. And just to show you that he's being dead serious, Jesus even goes so far as to say, you can even ask God for the greatest thing that you could ever ask of him. But what is that? What is the greatest thing that we could ever ask of God, according to Jesus? Well, he tells us in the second half of verse 13, he says, how much more... Will the heavenly father give the Holy spirit to those who ask him according to Jesus, the greatest thing that you and I could ever ask of God is the Holy spirit, the Holy spirit. Now, let's kind of be brutally honest here. Is that really in your estimation, in your opinion, the greatest thing that you could personally ask of God? is and you think about what's the greatest thing i could ask of god for my life is the holy spirit the top of the list if i had to venture a guess if i had to possibly read your mind i would say probably not i would probably say that for you guys the holy spirit is not your most greatest thing that you could ask of god if anything it would be something more more practical, more earthly. You know, I want to have a better marriage or I want to get married or I want to have, you know, fulfilling career. I want to have status. I want to have financial security. I want to have good health or I want healing from a disability that I or my loved one are currently struggling with. Whatever the case may be, my point is for most of us, if we're honest, asking for the Holy Spirit is not in our estimation the greatest thing that we could ask of God. But here's the thing, Jesus will tell us in just a moment, by not having that mindset, by not recognizing the Spirit of God as the greatest thing you could ask of Jesus, you are actually jeopardizing yourself. You're putting yourself in great danger, and you're thinking to yourself, what are you talking about? How does that, how does that play out? How is it that the Holy Spirit not being the greatest thing that we could ask of God, in my mind, how does that jeopardize me, Pastor? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to answer another one, which is what makes the Holy Spirit so great? What is it about the Spirit of God that according to Christ is the greatest thing? Well, Jesus actually tells us in his own words, which was recorded for us in John chapter 14, we're starting in the 16th verse, we read, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here, Jesus tells us many things about the spirit of God that make him so great. But I want to highlight three specific things about the spirit of God that's especially relevant in our current discussion. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Namely, he is the source of all truth. And he is the only one who makes sense of anything and everything in life. Okay, he's the spirit of truth. Number two, the spirit cannot be seen in the world. He's invisible. He cannot be captured with the physical senses. He is beyond the measurements of scientific inquiry, right? The spirit is invisible. Number three, in some mysterious, inexplicable way, he lives inside the believer. He lives inside the Christian. Those are the three things that Jesus says that make the spirit so great. And you're thinking to yourself, what? (laughs) The spirit of God being the spirit of truth, being invisible, living inside of a believer What's so significant about that? Why is that such a big deal? The answer, it's a very big deal. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Do you guys know that all of you in here have a part of you that's invisible? Let me say that again. All of you in here have a side of you that's invisible. And what I mean, there's a part of you that people cannot see. And from an existential standpoint, this invisible self Ashley is inside of you. It's buried deep within you beyond the detection of any of your five senses. And in the rare moments that you can detect this invisible side of you, you don't understand it. It's a mystery to you. You can't explain it. Listen to how one psychology professor up in Toronto by the name of Jordan Peterson, what's he says? He writes this, quote, people are complicated. We're not transparent to ourselves at all. That is why we have to go to university and study psychology. We are the most complicated things there are, and we can't even program our VCR clocks. So how can we propose to understand ourselves? You see, one of the most terrifying and unavoidable things that we discover about ourselves is that there is a part of us that we don't understand. And yet we understand enough to know that this part of us, this vague, nebulous side of us, there's something off about it. There's something wrong. There's something not good about it. It's kind of like when little kids, you know, They're around someone and they can just tell that someone is off. You know, little kids have this uncanny ability to be able to sense that there's something wrong about a person and potentially dangerous, right? Well, that's kind of what I'm talking about here. We all have this kind of little kid radar going off inside of us that says there's something about me. There's something about inside of me. This this thing that I can't really see that other people can't really see that's dangerous, right? But here's the thing. You don't understand it. You don't understand why it's dangerous. And as a result, you feel utterly confused and overwhelmed. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote these words in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. He writes, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I do it anyway. See, Paul and really the whole Bible recognize that we all have something going on inside of us that isn't good, that's evil, but here's the thing. We don't know what to do about it because we don't understand it, right? And as a result, we're filled with such a frustrating sense of shame and a frustrating sense of guilt to the point where it might cause us to hate ourselves, to the point where we might even hurt ourselves, maybe even take our own lives, And so what do we do, at least initially, as a way of coping? We hide, right? We make that side of us invisible. We kind of live in denial. How so? Well, Jesus actually illustrates it for us in the example that he gives With his father in verse 11, listen again to what he says. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here you have a father who is evil, right? There's something off about him. And what does he do to deal with this evil? What does he do to try and quote, unquote, make it invisible, to hide it? He does good things. He behaves in a good way, right? He gives his son, for example, a fish, an egg instead of a scorpion, right? Instead of a snake, instead of a serpent. In other words, he does good deeds. He makes great achievements that other people would admire and respect him for. He does things as a way to hide. But here's the thing. When Jesus references the Holy Spirit as he does in the end of verse 13, he is implying there's something dangerous that happens when you do that. There is something dangerous when you try to cover over and make invisible the inner evil inside of you, right? And when you remember that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who makes sense of everything, you understand what that danger is, which is what? It's the danger of self-deception. The danger of self-deception. Jesus is trying to tell us that when you try to live in denial, when you try to make invisible this side of you, this mysterious unexplainable evil that dwells within you by trying to cover it over with good works, with great achievements, and so forth, you fall into self-deception. Why is that so bad? Well, take a listen to how one philosopher by the name of Cornelius Plantica what he says about it all because he hits the nail on the head. He writes this, quote, Why do alcoholics and other drug abusers typically go through years of denial? Why is the revelation of incest an astonishment to people who are living right in the middle of it? How did raiding Nazis convince themselves that their killing programs serve the best interests, even of their victims? Why do battering husbands offer minimizing and euphemistic accounts of the beatings they administer? And why do battered wives, in most cases, accept and repeat those accounts? One word self deception. Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify realities and sell ourselves the prettified versions. We become our own dupes, playing the role of both perpetrator and victim. We know the truth, and yet we don't know it because we persuade ourselves of its opposite. To that extent, we are trapped in a twilight zone in which the shortest distance between two points is a labyrinth. Amaze. what's he saying he's saying that when you fall into self-deception you've essentially drunk your own kool-aid in other words when you work so hard to try and convince everybody else that there is not an evil bone in your body to where you try to make it invisible to them eventually you'll start buying into it yourself to where the evil within becomes invisible to you And once that happens, you no longer have an inner fail-safe, no backup system in place to make sure that you are held accountable to whatever evil you do. When you start buying into the press clippings that you are trying to convince other people, there's nothing in me, it's all invisible, it doesn't exist. Pretty soon, all the evil things that initially would have been sensitive to you become dull, and it starts snowballing into effect to where you end up doing destructive things to other people even to yourself that initially you thought you never would have been capable of doing, right? Friends, this is why the Holy Spirit is the greatest thing that we could ever ask about because it is the Holy Spirit who frees us from self-deception and the destructions that are attached to it. How? Because he lives inside of us. He enters into the realm of invisibility within, where he clearly sees what everyone else cannot see, even ourselves. But not only that, he's the spirit of truth, which means he can give us wisdom and insight and not just ignoring the evil, but overcoming the evil. He gives us the ability to understand the whys and therefore the hows so that we can no longer live in the kind of trappings of sin and shame and guilt because of it. For example, he knows why that married man keeps looking at pornography, right? And why he can't overcome it, even though his wife is heartbroken and she's begging him, please stop, and he just can't. When the Holy Spirit lives inside and as he grows in his knowledge of the Holy Spirit, he can understand the dynamics of his addiction and finally overcome it. The Holy Spirit understands the woman who has a problem of overeating to where she is jeopardizing her health and therefore her ability to be a a faithful presence to her children. The Holy Spirit can give insight and wisdom into the wise of this nebulous evil inside that has no self-control to where she can finally have some discipline and have some control over her intake of food. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes in to the area of life that we cannot comprehend, and he can bring understanding and insight to where we are free from the trappings of life to where we feel we have hope rather than feeling like that we have no hope and there's no escape except tragically maybe even to kill ourselves, This past week, we saw a tragedy happen where two people took their own lives. I wonder how much of their situation could have been alleviated if their view of God was different to the point where they would even ask God for the Holy Spirit, the greatest thing that would have freed them. Something that no amount of fame, no amount of money, no amount of notoriety and respect from the public could have provided. You know, people ask me, Pastor John, how can you believe in a God you can't see? How can you believe in a God that's invisible? And my response to them is always this. I believe in a God I can't see. I believe in a God that's invisible because he can see the side of me that's invisible to everyone else, including me. And he is able to bring change and power and transformation where I'm utterly powerless to overcome. And he can bring insight and understanding to me that I could never comprehend on my own, that no one else could help me understand. To where he becomes more real to me than the person standing right in front of me that I see with my own two eyes. And here's the thing, Christian, that can be your testimony as well. But here's the thing, you're never going to get there. If you never are bold enough to ask God for this gift of the Holy Spirit, and you're never going to be bold enough to ask for the Holy Spirit until you overcome this assumption that God is a distant God. Listen, if you have a view of God to where you believe he doesn't care about the surface details of your life, you're never going to believe that he cares enough to go beneath the surface, down to the depths of your soul, to where he can bring insight that that is unique and exclusively yours to where you can have victory that no one else could have. And so here's the question, how are we going to overcome this problem, right? How are we going to overcome this issue of a view of a distant God that manifests in reluctant prayer that keeps us from experiencing the greatest thing God wants for us? The answer leads me to my final point, how we can overcome the reluctance to pray. You know, verses 11 to 12, Jesus tells a very interesting portrayal of a father. And it's kind of a disturbing picture because if you read verse 11, can we have verse 11 and 12 up again? He talks about a father who would possibly give a snake or a scorpion to his own child. And you're like, Jesus, what are you thinking? You know, this is kind of a disturbing, dark picture of a of a, a father figure. You know, no father would do such things, right? And That is kind of Jesus's point. But yet by bringing it up the way that he does, he's almost kind of alluding that there are out there possibility of fathers who would do such things. And, of course, you know, we watch the news, we hear about tragic stories, and we do know that there are crazy fathers who do stuff like this even worse. But, of course, we ask ourselves, Jesus, why are you even bringing this into our heads? Why are you even putting this thought into our minds? I like to try and come up with a creative way of explaining why. And I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment when you read verses 11 to 12. When most people read verses 11 and 12, and they read the word child, they envision kind of like a cute little four-year-old boy asking, Daddy, Daddy, can I have an egg? You know, Daddy, can I have a fish? And maybe that was, you know, Jesus's original intent. But let me ask, just for the sake of experiment, let's say that this child is not a four-year-old cute little innocent boy, but a 40-year-old man who's a cold-blooded killer, serial rapist, right, and does something atrocious like, like kidnapping children and selling them into sex trafficking, right? Just imagine that this is the kind of child that Jesus is referring to and that this man is not planning to stop anytime soon. He's able to evade the authorities, never get caught. And you have a father of this man in this situation, seeing, I got to stop my son. What do I do? And instead of giving him fish, he gives him a serpent. Instead of giving him an egg, he gives him a scorpion. How would your view of that father change? Right, It's not a grim, it's, it's a pretty grim picture, but it's a different kind of picturing. Where instead of a father who seems so vile, you might see a father who might be, in some people's minds, a hero. Or at least from a poetic justice standpoint, someone who does what needed to be done. Right? What's the point of this ridiculous? I don't know. I made this up in just a moment, so please forgive me if it just sounds weird. But what's the point of all this, this ridiculous uh, theory experiment I'm making? My point is simply this the Bible would say that all of us in here were like that 40 year old psycho. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying any of you in here are serial rapists and cold blooded killers, you know, but the point is, all of us in here are sinners. We all have it in us to be like that kind of crazy psycho that I just came up with my thought experiment. And if there are any of you in here who think, no way, I could never be that kind of person. I would never do such things. I would never be caught dead becoming such people. Can I remind you of that little quote of self-deception? Let me read you another portion of it, a smaller portion. It says this, self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify ugly realities and sell ourselves the prettified versions. We become our own dupes, playing the role of perpetuator and victim. We know the truth, and yet we don't know it because we persuade ourselves of its opposite. If you don't think that you don't have a clear and present danger of becoming that kind of a person, then I'm sorry to say you probably are self-deceived. You don't know yourself. You're not aware of what you are capable of becoming. In other words, you are invisible to yourself, which means the destructions that come from self-deception are right at the corner of your door if you're not careful. And the only reason, only reason why you're not that person yet, right, is because of God's restraining hand upon your life. The only reason why none of us in here are crazy, cold-blooded killers is not because we're virtuous of ourselves, but because by God's grace, he is restraining that total depravity in us from coming out. God is the reason, not you, why you are not crazy the way that you really are. He's merciful. Now, some of you hear that, like, wait a minute, pastor, if what you're saying is true, that God is merciful— uh, that, that doesn't sound right because after all doesn't the bible say that god is also the cosmic judge that he's going to be the final say of authority and make all things right that was once wrong i mean isn't he be the one who will one day stand on the judgment throne and judge everyone including those who got away with murder and rape isn't he the one who makes sure that no one gets away and no one Goes unanswered for all the crimes, all the sins that they commit. If that's the case, if he is that final source of judgment, how can he be merciful? He can't be merciful, right? Wrong. Because, yes, it is true. God is the source of cosmic authority. He is the source of final judgment. But he can be merciful because there is this thing known as the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says our heavenly father has a bunch of wicked children has a bunch of people who are like that 40-year-old psycho that I just mentioned in that weird experiment of mine right all of us right to where he had every right to give us a serpent he had every right to give us a scorpion or at the very least to keep his distance from us to where he doesn't even respond to where we're in a crisis he had every right to do that but instead he doesn't what does he do he comes to us in love he comes to us in mercy where he's willing to give us all the blessings. He's willing to give us fish. He's willing to give us eggs. He's willing to give us the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's other son, his other child, his only begotten son, in full agreement with his father, in full cooperation with his father, and in full consent to his father, said, I will come and be the savior of my brother and sister who are fallen. I will be their substitute savior where I no will suffer the attack of the serpent i will suffer the sting of death of the scorpion which he did on the cross it was jesus who suffered the serpent's sting right satan on the cross it was jesus who suffered the sting of death of the scorpion to where where we like paul can say oh death where is thy sting Because he took the punishment for us on our behalf. He became the one who took all the pain, all the misery, all the guilt, all the shame that we should have gotten on our behalf. If we look to him as our savior, if we make him the savior of our life, that's what he did. That is what the gospel teaches us. Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins, paying the full and final cosmic justice of God to where you don't suffer the wrath of the serpent. You don't suffer the sting of death. Instead, you have forgiveness of sins. You have eternal life. And you have the gift of his spirit living inside of you. When you understand that, and when you keep understanding that, your perception of God starts to change. To where now he's no longer this distant God who is remotely attached to where he only notices and pays attention when you're in a crisis. No, he knows you so well. He pays attention to where he even sees things that you can't even see about yourself, that other people can't see. And pretty soon, your prayers change from being infrequent, from being distant, to being a prayer that is constantly coming out of your heart, out of your lips, because it is driven by a view of God that is driven by your view of the gospel. Here's my question NCF. see Is that the view of God that you have? Because I tell you, the more you have that view of God, the more your prayers become more filled with less crisis prayers, but more prayers driven by. I want to know more of you, God. I want to know more about who you are. I want to be filled, Lord, with your spirit. I want your spirit to teach me about yourself and about me, so that I will no longer be deceived, so that I will no longer do destructive things to the people around me or even to myself, so that I could be a blessing to the people around us. But here's my question. Is that your prayer? Is that your view of God? I hope that for the sake of your family, I hope for the sake of the world, that that is. At this time, I want to end my message with some practical next steps so that you can better apply what today's message was all about. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but today's message really resonated with you to the point where you feel like, I've been a stranger to myself for far too long, and I've been living in such guilted shame because of this inner evil within that I cannot comprehend or overcome, and I'm ready to have Christ in my life. Take this time now and to pray and go to God, asking for him to be the forgiver of your sins and also the freer of your sins someone who frees you from the domination of sin so that you can understand yourself and therefore be a saint free from the trappings of self-deception. And afterwards, we would love to come talk to you, um, Pastor James and I, and help you in your next steps of becoming a follower of Jesus. Number two, memorize Luke 11, verse 13 this week. And in fact, I would encourage you to recite that every time you pray, whether it's praying in the shower, praying before you eat, Just recite that together as a family even, or in 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 the context of a marriage, right? Recite that because when you understand that Jesus is telling you that you can even ask for the Spirit of God, then you know you can ask for things that are even not as great, relatively speaking, that God still wants you to ask, that God still is encouraging you to ask, right? Pray with this passage in mind. Number three, would you be willing to substitute five minutes of your social media time (laughs) And take that five minutes and pray. You know, studies tell us that Americans spend on average four to six hours a day on their phones, right? All that looking on Facebook, all that looking on Twitter, all adds up in one day to four hours. Could you start this week by allocating five minutes, whether it's on your way to work, while you're washing your hair, right? As you're just, you know, instead of just, you know, watching ridiculous, you know, memes on Facebook, spend five minutes in prayer and just go. And be free. Ask God for anything and everything under the sun to the point where maybe those five minutes could build up to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or a half hour, to where maybe even you would ask for the filling of the spirit because you're so confident in who this God is for you and how much he loves you. And finally, number four, another way to help with you encouraging and better prayer is start praying for each other in your oikos group. Start sharing. Some of your prayer requests, do an email chain and assign certain days with your Oikos group members of what to pray for. Mondays will be for, for Ron, Tuesdays will be for Susan, Wednesdays will be for, for Mark, and so forth. And just really get into the habit of just praying so that you can have that built-in accountability in strengthening your view of God and building your confidence in his love for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to be a people of prayer, just as we are doing now as we come before you. Lord, we want to not just call you our friend, but we want to live out our friendship with you through prayer. Father, many of us have been so reluctant over the years of our walk with you to engage you, and to only feel like that the acceptable time where we can engage you in prayer is when we're in a crisis. But other than that, it's out of sight and out of mind. But oh God, Help us to see the truth. Help us to see that you are a God who is near. Even though you are a God who is invisible, Father, help us to see you with the eyes of faith. Help us to witness your work in our lives as your spirit does its sanctifying work in making us more like your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this room who have been struggling in prayer because they have struggled to see you as the faithful father that you are. Oh God, would you once again make the gospel truth so sweet to us, make it so powerful, So that we would be emboldened, that we would be unashamed in seeking after you to where we would ask of all things, but especially the greatest thing of all, for your spirit to continue to do its fulfilling work by being filled up in us. Oh God, would you help us now for the sake of our sanity and for the good of this world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.